0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Lily Gorin, and today I'm hosting Saladan Ambar, author of American Cicero, Mario Cuomo, and the Defense of American Liberalism, published just at the end of last year by Oxford University Press. This is a compelling exploration of not just Mario Cuomo, but of the concepts of American liberalism, presidential politics in the 20th century, our understanding of governors in the United States and the geographic and political shifts that transpired during the latter half three. While Saladin Ambar's book focused specifically on Cuomo for those who remember him and for those who know nothing about him, Cuomo is, as Din notes, an American version of the Roman Cicero. He was both a theorist and a politician. And one who spent most of his political career in elected executive positions, unlike other American political theorists and practitioners of the 20th century, like Daniel Patrick Moynihan or Louis Brandeis. But I will let Saladin, or Din as his friends call him, (laughs) explain the comparisons and contrasts in more detail. First, though, I would like Saladin Ambar to tell us a little about himself and how he came to this project.
1: Well, thank you, Lily. I really appreciate you having me here. Well, my current position is senior scholar at the Center on the American Governor at Rutgers University's Eagleton Institute of Politics. So, uh, in that role, um, my uh, task is to research and um, write about governors and executive politics. Um, And I guess I got that position off of the strength of my first book, How Governors Built the Modern American Presidency. Um, And so, this book. doesn't take a uh, multi decade approach uh, to thinking about uh, governors writ large, but rather focuses on a singular governor, my governor uh, of my youth, um, high school years, Mario Cuomo. So, um, That is a bit of my biography. I've come to this book um, after writing a book about another person, uh, a political leader of sorts who lived in Queens as well, um, and that was Malcolm X. (laughs) Um, And uh, that book reflects my interest in race. And so I've been writing about race and executive politics over the past 10 years or so and uh, kind of going back and forth and have enjoyed um, being able to do both.
0: Great. And and this book certainly picks up threads with regard to race as you note throughout. Um, so my first question is is something that you do for the for the reader. You provide this kind of amazing cliff note version of your book in the preface, where you lay out the reason for your work on Cuomo. Can you explain what this book is all about as you quote? I do we need a book about Cuomo.
1: Right. Well, um, I, I think that that email um, exchange came about primarily because one of the reviewers or readers of, of the book um, asked that question, why do we need a book about Cuomo? Um, and to me, I'd been living with Mario Cuomo in my head the past five years writing and researching about him, and it seemed pretty evident to me that he was a person of consequence. But um, I think that that is Is it in a nutshell that I think he was a highly consequential uh, political figure in American life, one that has been overlooked because we tend to be a bit presidency crazy uh, in this country and don't really think much about governors or other kinds of political actors, but – Certainly in the moment, I think for those of us who are, let's say, over 40, not to tell tales, um, we can recall who Mario Cuomo was if we were paying attention to politics. We recall not only his convention speech in 1984, but his um rejection of the possibility of seeking the presidency in both 1988 and 1992. And I think more importantly, we remember Cuomo as a figure whose oratory really painted a picture in contrast to the conservatism of the Reagan era. Cuomo, uh, as well as anyone, and perhaps better than anyone, I would argue, um, extolled the virtues of New Deal liberalism at a time when it was under assault uh, by a host of agencies during the Reagan era, um, including the Justice Department, um, it was under assault um, intellectually as the conservative intellectual movement um, was being um, was coming into its own. And yet Cuomo um, stayed true to the variant of liberalism that he grew up with. He was born in 1932, the year FDR was elected, and I think his very life reflected the kind of uh, arc of liberalism's rise and decline. And even in that decline, he, uh, I think, unlike, uh, and perhaps we'll get into this uh, figure like Bill Clinton, who decided to move away from the tide of liberalism with the new tide of conservatism, Cuomo decided that his convictions were such that he would continue to argue for the positive role of government in the lives of American citizens. And so um, I think he did that better, frankly, than any other figure on the left, any, certainly any other Democratic Party figure in the United States. And I think um, he did it in language that was really memorable and moving, and therefore I think he's uh, deserving of uh, the title American Cicero.
0: And, and, uh, and you go through sort of some of his capacities with regard to his his capacity to communicate, his capacity to defend liberalism, um, his understanding, governing also, um, and and so you note that we understand in the dynamic that you structure into your analysis in terms of Como's position as the defender of New Deal liberalism his position as a governor of the state of New York in the midst of the Reagan revolution. And this is really fascinating historical and political contextualizing um, that I think is quite important to the role you ascribe to Cuomo. And I'm persuaded by your argument, but you lay it out in terms of Sticks' theory of political time. Can you explain a little bit about that theory in particular, and how you position Cuomo within it in this context of the Reagan Revolution, the rise of the sort of Clintonian wing of the the Democratic Party, the decline of the New Deal, and so forth? certainly, i'll I'll, I'll give it a shot. So
1: Cuomo is uh, elected uh, in 1982. He takes office in 1983. This is uh, two years after Reagan's inauguration in 1981, um, a period that Skoranek, uh Stephen Skoranek of Yale University suggests, was a period of reconstructive politics. Uh, which is to say that the liberalism of uh, the New Deal that had become in some ways tied to and personified by the failed policies of Jimmy Carter and certainly a a, a troubled and in many ways failed presidency, um, that moment – uh, was one in which uh, Reagan came to the fore and uh, challenged the prevailing notions of, of the day that liberalism uh, had had its moment, Reagan argued, and it was now time for um, a new kind of assessment of government. Government is the problem, Reagan argued. Now, Cuomo and Reagan are political contemporaries. You know, Cuomo comes to power in New York at, at, at this moment, not shying away from liberalism, And he certainly had the opportunity to do so. In 1977, he runs for mayor of New York City uh, against Edward I. Koch, who does adopt a kind of Reaganite conservatism, uh, a law and order position of politics that um, is very much to the right of Cuomo, uh, who had uh, remained all of his life someone, for example, opposed to the death penalty. Um, So even in New York City, conservatism, of a type at least, uh, is emergent. Cuomo um, does not abide by that. Um, Skoranek would say that Cuomo is a disjunctive kind of political figure, someone who is operating outside of the new prevailing political norms and wins. And yet he becomes a three-term governor, Um, very successful uh, at a time when uh, New York is uh, struggling financially, at a time when New York has strong Republican opposition in the Assembly uh, and and state legislature writ large. And here is Cuomo uh, up against it, if you will, at a moment when liberalism's heyday is well um, in the shadows. Um, Hugh Carey, who was the Democratic governor before Cuomo, famously said that the days of wine and roses are over, referring to the fiscal crisis that had made the kinds of uh, popular uh, public works programs and projects that liberals loved over the years no longer plausible. So Cuomo comes into this moment, no wine, no roses, a lot of great oratory, and some skillful political moves Doing what he can to bolster liberalism at a time when it is really under assault,
0: and and so that's the assault essentially from the Reagan Revolution, right, and and that's the you know sort of a continuation of the move um, in the New Right, um, which is now really entrenched with Reagan and with um, a rise of Republican governors in the Sun Belt, as you note, and so forth, um, and in a state that at that time was still a fairly Republican state in lots of ways. Um, But then you move on and you talk about the fact that Cuomo also was in a position where he's defending essentially the Democratic Party and liberalism from an assault within. So we have the um, inter-party, so then we have an intra-party fight. And you note that um, this is coming from sort of Clintonianism, or at least the rise of Bill Clinton, the Democratic Leadership Council, um, and essentially political positions that are more conservative, certainly, than Mario Cuomo's positions and those of the waning New Deal.
1: Absolutely. Look, we can look at this period as a period of three governors, if you will. A, a former governor, uh, Ronald Reagan, who had become president from the Sunbelt State of California, reflecting the new conservatism of law and order, low taxes, a more muscular military, et cetera. Um, a, a very much an anti-civil rights stance. Um, we can look at another governor, um, uh, Mario Cuomo, who reflected the old ways of the New Deal liberalism that had um, been uh, in sway for 50 years in American life. And then there was a third governor from Arkansas who had lost an election um, and decided to move to the right in Arkansas. And by 1982, Bill Clinton had become a rising star in um, Southern politics and within Democratic Party politics. Uh, He'd become um, the leader of the Democratic uh, Governors Association, and he helped found the Democratic Leadership Council, a conservative uh, organization um, whose purpose was to move the Democratic Party away from New Deal liberalism. And so I think if you're going to think about this moment in the mid-1980s, when I think a lot of American politics was still up for grabs, you can view it as this sort of triangle of Reagan and and um, Cuomo on one end with Bill Clinton, that third part of the triangle trying to, in his own language, uh, foster a middle way uh, of politics, a triangulation of sorts against um The hard right, but also the hard left. And uh, it was a dynamic and interesting moment. Uh, And all three men um, were um, gifted uh, rhetoricians, uh, in my estimation, none more so than Cuomo. But part of what makes the moment important was that um, the language used to seek out a new direction in American politics was as good as any, certainly in the last 50 years in American politics and I think uh, Cuomo um, stands out as the preeminent figure in that regard, even though he's in many ways fighting a losing battle.
0: And as you know, in you know, in many sections of the book, he makes the choice not to run for president. And he makes the choice not to run for president, and so while he gives these amazing speeches at the nineteen eighty four Democratic convention, as you note and and elsewhere that his ultimately his choice is to not pursue the Oval Office and Can you explain a little bit about how your book explores that and how that dynamic also shaped Cuomo as a political figure?
1: Sure, well. Look, I think uh, what I've come to understand from thinking about Cuomo over the last five or six years is that he would have liked to have been president. I think he wanted to be president. Um, but I think Cuomo also had other desires and wants that, uh, and uh, passions that he um, restrained over the course of his life. Um, you know, Cuomo was a person who spent very few days away from his home and his wife. Uh, he was someone who, uh, was a kind of ascetic almost in terms of how he lived his life, not to glamorize asceticism, Lord knows, but he certainly, far be it from me. Uh, But, um, but he did have a kind of restraint that was rooted in his, uh, Vincentian, um, Catholicism from St. John's Prep and the university and the law school. Cuomo took his Catholicism very seriously. You know, we've had lots of Catholic politicians. We've had lots of, uh, we've had a Catholic president. Um, and I think uh, the the record is pretty clear that uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, while openly a Catholic, was someone who had his own very serious doubts about religion, about God, about the church. And he was pretty forthcoming, at least with friends about it. Cuomo was actually reading, you know, Pierre Teilhard Chardin. He was actually, you know, um, handing books out to his friends and and loved ones. I mean, you know, this was someone who chose to go to Notre Dame, (coughs) pardon me, and speak, um, at the university for an hour uh, about his religious convictions and the role of uh, a religious person in public life. Um, so I, I that is a long wind up to say that I think Cuomo's desire, ironically enough, for the presidency, um, boomeranged against him to the degree that he. Could not and would not allow himself to satisfy uh, the desire that he believed to be, in a sense, sinful. That it was beyond, um, you know, proper for you to seek out what his father had uh, that which his a word his father had used and that he used in his first inaugural in New York called chitmonia ceremony. Mm-hmm you know, Cuomo says all the pomp and chitamonia. I had to look it up and figure out how to spell it. I was contacting all of my good Italian speaker friends. uh, But the word, you know, it's sort of New Yorkese, you know, pronounced chitamonia, but it's, you know, ceremony, or it looks like ceremonia uh, on paper. Um, But the idea that Cuomo was hearing, hearing his father's voice, oh, you've become so big now, your mansion in Albany isn't good enough for you, now you've got to go to the White House. It was a very ethnic kind of prideful rejection of pride. Uh, and in all of his major speeches, Cuomo... Um, uh, rejected his own ambition. I, I like to point out that uh, in The Federalist, I guess it's Madison who says ambition must be made to counter ambition. Well, there you go. It's a, it's a good one. And Cuomo counted his own ambition. He said, I'll one-up you, Madison. I'll counter my own ambition. I don't, I'm don't. i going to take myself out of the field of politics on that level. And I think um the, the answer to why Cuomo doesn't run is really in those speeches, referencing his father, referencing the notion that I've achieved more than I could ever be, uh, you know, could ever have dreamed. To desire more would be egregious, would be sinful, uh, to be ungrateful, a word he liked to use. Uh, how could I be wan or... Or, or morose about not becoming president or not able to run for the presidency. Look at all of I, I've achieved. Um, meanwhile, you could look at a person like Bill Clinton, who's down in Arkansas, making every connection with every Democratic Party fi- official and governor, slapping every backhand. He's not leaving uh, the convention early. He's staying late. He's hanging out. He's you know talking to all of the people that need to be spoken to, burnishing his credentials, Um, I had spoken with uh, the former, I guess, um, chair or director of the National Governors Association, Ray Shepak, who uh, was very uh, forthcoming, and he said, you know, you'd see Mario Cuomo at these uh, meetings and you'd get the sense that he thinks he's the best and smartest person in the room. Meanwhile, uh, Bill Clinton would be out there shaking hands, introducing himself. Uh, getting to know people, Bill Clinton would be the most loved person in the room, and so that was the difference between the two. Cuomo saw that kind of politicking as unseemly, but guess what? It was necessary. Not that he didn't want it, but in a sense, was not would not allow himself to go through the process uh, a process that really um, called for vainglory, right? Another good. Catholic word, you know <laughs> good biblical term to be used, right? Uh so Cuomo um rejected that. I think.
0: And I mean, I, I think that your analysis is really fascinating also in, in the comparison between the two, because one doesn't necessarily really think of them, Bill Clinton and Mario, you know, in this contemporary way, because one was so much younger and and a newcomer and so forth, and the other one was older and had been in politics for longer. But I think that your positioning of them As the two sides of the Democratic Party during this period in the 1980s moving into the 1990s is a really fascinating understanding of also what the Democratic Party was going through Um, and and to some degree continues to go through as we see these tensions between, you know, so the progressive wing and the more conservative wing of the party these days Um, and moving into possibly the 2020 election cycle, but we won't go there yet. Um, so I wanted to ask you about the structure of this book, which you say is not really a biography, but it's kind of a biography. So if you don't mind, can you explain the reason why you did structure the book as you did, but why you argue that it is not as such exactly a biography?
1: Sure. Well, um I, there is one uh, biography of Mario Cuomo that has been written, and I, and I read it, and it was a, an invaluable source. So Robert uh, McIlvain in 1988 produced, a, um, I guess, an authorized biography of, of Cuomo. It was at a moment when it was possible that Cuomo might enter the race. And so, you know, what do you got to do? You got to have a presidential biography. Let's go here. You can't run without one. And that biography was a soup to nuts, you know, from Cuomo's parents to you know that moment in 1988. I knew I did not want to do that. I also knew uh, I because it, in part because it had been done. I also knew that I was an outsider, um, and someone who did not have an have an established relationship with uh, with the Cuomos, someone who. Uh, frankly, was a a relative neophyte as a political historian. Despite my age, I'm still relatively new as a political uh, historian or or, or biographer, if you will. And so I knew I would not have an inside track there. And frankly, McElvain had covered that work. What I was interested in is who is Mario Cuomo politically? What does his life story uh, have to say about the politics? of the Democratic Party, about the politics of liberalism. And so I pick up the story of Cuomo in 1964 with his first entree into politics when he becomes uh, a mediator in a dispute between uh, the uh, notorious Robert Moses and a group of uh, Queens uh, auto shop owners uh, who are about to have their shops raised during the 1964 World's Fair because Robert Moses wants that unsightly area uh, those who are familiar with uh, the area outside of City Field uh, formerly Shea Stadium when I when I was growing up know how unsightly it was but those people had businesses and they were small business owners and Cuomo came into the fray and saved them he you know and that was his first moment. Uh, in politics, defeating Robert Moses. That's not really uh, something that uh, a lot of folks know. But I wanted to cover the politics of Cuomo and frankly, the governorship uh, in Toto, you know, because McIlvain obviously stops his book in 1988. Well, Cuomo's got – the better part of six years left in public life uh, as governor, um, and I wanted to cover that and also to think more broadly about who this individual was. Um, I began my research maybe two years before Cuomo passed away. Uh, I guess this was the January first of two thousand and fifteen. <coughs> Excuse me. So I had a, a full sense of what he meant at that time, whereas obviously McElvain was more limited because the story was still unfolding. Um, So the the elements of biography within the book in some ways are on the back end when I go to Italy, uh, something that no other um, political biographer or writer of Cuomo's had done, and begin to ask questions about, uh, you know, cuomo 's family uh, the, his uh, the influence of the church the uh, influence of fascism as a potential motivator for leaving Italy at that time, and um seeking answers to the question why didn't he run for the presidency and all of that is uh included in the epilogue because again, the personal dimension of Cuomo for me was less um significant than the political elements uh and the political history. And so I wanted to to write a story about what I deemed to be, to be uh an American Cicero, someone who was the counterfoil to the politics of his day. You know, if you go to Italy today uh or you read Italian history, Roman history, you know, you're going to have I don't know, maybe a, a 10 to 1 ratio of books devoted to Caesar as compared to Cicero, right? (laughs) But those books on Cicero matter because they pointed uh, to uh, an ideal of what the Roman Republic should be. And I think that'll be true for uh, Reagan as opposed to Cuomo. There'll probably be many more books and are many more books written about Reagan than there are Cuomo. But I think that narrative of what kind of Republic uh, ought we to have is an important one to to engage in uh, and to think about. And I think Cuomo's arguments about the good life, about uh, what it means to be a, a country where we're all equal citizens, where equal opportunities extended to all, all of those things really were counters to Reagan and I think make him a really compelling figure, perhaps not a Caesar, But the biographers of Caesar are plenty. We need more biographers of people like Cuomo who were challenging, I think, even unsuccessfully, some of the prevailing notions of the time.
0: But in in the book, as the way you sort of structure it, you you go through not necessarily a linear per se um, structure, although it is somewhat linear, but you contextualize it with regard to the party, um, to New York. Um, to sort of re- the response to Reagan um, so that you parse out, as you you yourself articulated, that it's not, you know, it's not a continuation of the McIlvain biography, but it's also a broader understanding of politics, um, particularly late 20th century politics in the United States. Um, and I think that that structure of the book is also what sets it apart from being a biography. Um and, and you also, as you know, got to spend some time in Italy to write the book. Um, what did you learn about Cuomo in your in your travel to Italy and in sort of locating some of the family and the relatives there? Sure.
1: Well, I, I suppose I should shout out my wonderful uh translator and research assistant, Angels uh, uh, Miralda, who uh, gave up some of her PhD time to suffer in Italy with me uh, uh, at various points. And obviously, she knew the language and I didn't. Um, so uh, that was she was indispensable in helping me navigate uh, throughout places like Tramante and Nocera Superiore and some of the southern areas that we visited. But uh, one of the things I learned, for example, and you have to go there, is to visit the, the home site of Cuomo's mother, uh, Immaculata uh, Cuomo, and, and, and being there uh, and seeing her homestead and looking at uh, the area Cuomo grew up in. Well, one of the things that occurred – or not Cuomo, but his family – one of the things that occurs to you is, you know, his mother had some nice land. It's a very nice area here. You know, this is pretty pretty good. Um the, uh, which is to say that, you know, Cuomo's father came from more humble back, more of a humble background uh, in Noxera, but the idea that Cuomo's family were, you know, dirt poor, you know, hard scrabble, hard bitten people, you know, eh, not so much, you know, they had some means, particularly his mother's side of the family. Uh, and that's an important, the Giordanos, they, that, that's important to, to recognize. Um, also, you know, uh, when I went to uh, Nocero Superiore and we were interviewing some of the family members, Rosie Cuomo, uh, Cuomo's uh, cousins, and so forth, you know, they pulled out a uh, a family crest. Well, you know, not everybody had family crests. Uh, you know, I I don't. I, you know, I'm I'm waiting to see mine. You know. <laughs> um, uh, and I have family from uh, from Naples and Sicily on my on my mother's side Here, my great grandparents and so forth. But um, the fact that there was a family crest, the fact that the Cuomo family uh, ha- was doing well, not a wealthy family, but certainly not impoverished, is an indication that I think Cuomo, um, you know, sort of... Uh, extemporized and, you know, burnished his image as, you know, up from, you know, if not up from slavery, then up from peasantry, you know, right? You know, the father with the bleeding feet and everything. And not that his father uh, wasn't an exceedingly hardworking man, but, you know, there was a little bit of the Horatio Alger exaggeration there. So that I thought was, was interesting. You know, these were people who had some means and were dignified people uh, from Italy that I would not have known had I not gone. I also would not have, um, seen the extent to which the rumors about Cuomo's, uh, not running for the presidency because of some purported or alleged, uh, ties, uh, to organized crime were not only untrue, but also in a sense, um, you know, as prevalent in Italy as they are here. Uh, and uh, people, um, talk about the rumors, uh, some people support those rumors, including, um, one of Cuomo's family members, right? Not that he was tied to the mob or his family was, but that he, uh, was, uh, and his mother was told that he shouldn't run, threatened that he shouldn't run based on, um, uh, the, uh, Italian mobs, the ne- Neapolitan mobs, uh, La Camora telling him not to run. Now, uh, you know, uh, It's six in one hand, half a dozen on the other. I mean, there's so, you know, there's so many, these are things that could never be proven. um, uh, What I found, however, was that, you know, there are lots of Cuomos in Italy. And, you know, could any of them have been connected to organized crime? I'm sure just uh, if you wanted to find a Wall Street banker named Smith who was corrupt, you could find a bunch of them, right? <laughs> um, and so, and so, if you wanted to find a Cuomo who's corrupt in Italy, yeah, you could probably find him so uh, but the point is i in going through all of that and obviously not uncovering anything untoward about Cuomo's family or any you know connections therein, it occurred to me to go back to the very basis of the research that I've been uncovering. Go back to the language of Cuomo. Go back to his life experience. It's all there as to why he didn't run. We'd like to believe, I think, uh, that someone as capable as Cuomo couldn't resist the desire to run because we wouldn't resist it. You know, what do what we ever turn down uh, that that's before us as, you know, normal people that that um, would, uh, you know, give us greater power or money and, and so forth? We have nothing. We, we take it, Right. So Cuomo is that rare political bird who exercised restraint over himself, who said, you know what? I don't need it. I have enough. Uh, And I think that that in and of itself is a very powerful lesson, a kind of political virtue, particularly um, when we consider uh, at least some of the claims made that perhaps, who can ever know for sure, that uh, uh president donald j trump uh decided to run for the office of the presidency uh based on an insult at a 2011 correspondence dinner well you know that that's all it took for him to decide to run and here's Cuomo who had it all laid out before him uh, and he said no that lesson or at least the thought of that lesson is an important one i think for for considering um what the founding ideal was uh, for how and why people should seek the office of the presidency for ma- to maybe what we 've devolved to you know um, if it can help your celebrity status, if it can help maybe your ratings, even if you lose, you win um, that was hardly the kind of calculus involved with Mario Cuomo, and I think that 's worth thinking about
0: in a certain sense, it sounds like he 's almost Washingtonian in his is sort of pushing away at the office um, because it would not be appropriate to pursue it. Um, It doesn't reflect well on you or the office then. and so I wanted to to bring up the question of governors. Um, I know you have written other books about governors and you are here again teasing out the aspect of American politics and American political development in terms of the role of governors. You are at a center for the study of American governors. And you note the number of governors that we have elected to the White House in the 20th century, which I often discuss with my students as I pointed out to them. They, they are sort of intrigued by that. Um, and that the perspective of governors is distinct for members of the House and Senate to run for the presidency or to inhabit the White House. What do you learn about the office of governor, not only in New York, but across the US from your research on Cuomo?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think in part that governors remain so viable and interesting ironically enough nationally because they are not national figures right because they remain uh, in a sense outsiders they have the ability to um, come to washington point their finger and say you all have done it wrong you know it's interesting you you look at our trend we've elected a person recently or uh, where he's a, a t- attained the office of the presidency, by whatever means, um, uh, based on the fact that he has no politi- political connections or, or history whatsoever, right? No public service whatsoever. A complete outsider. Barack Obama, God love him, two years in the Senate, and he was off running for the presidency You know, hardly someone who is well connected nationally, uh, well connected to Washington politics. And then, after, and then before, uh, and so, you know, to be a senator in Washington who runs for the White House, it seems to be you better be one for two years or less because if you get any kind of record, you're going to be disqualified from running, and so maybe there's a lesson there for Kamala Harris, right? Because and or Cory
0: Booker, or Amy right? Klobuchar, exactly. or any number. Exactly.
1: Don't get a record. Uh, so, and then obviously before that, we had a long line of, or a relatively long line of governors, right, uh, or executives. So you got, you know, uh, certainly. Uh, George W. Bush and then Bill Clinton. And then we had the vice president, George Herbert Walker Bush, who was the extension of the governorship of Ronald Reagan, who, you know, succeeded um, uh, Jimmy Carter, who was a governor. And so, you know, the since Watergate, we've essentially said we don't want anybody who's been around here for a while. <laughs> and so governors um, have a record, but it's it's kind of strong enough to give them uh, some attention, but not well-known enough to hurt them nationally. And that is, uh, I think, interesting, because as much as uh, Americans say they love democracy and compromise, uh, which is the business of the Senate, um, they really don't think that makes for excellent leaders, certainly in periods where they're um, fighting against corruption or some kind of um, national. Uh, economic catastrophe. They go to governors who they think can go in and clean clean up the mess in Washington. So that was interesting, and to see how, frankly, uh, Cuomo, uh, Reagan, and Clinton were uh, important in part because you know I don't think they would have risen to the to the to the heights they rose to had they been senators or. Cabinet members, or what have you. It was the perch of the seat of governor that gave them tremendous authority to, ironically enough, become national figures.
0: And it doesn't matter what size state you come from either. You can come from Arkansas as a governor, or you can come from California as a governor, um, and and or Texas, obviously. Um, but that the the size of the state doesn't necessarily mean that much in terms of running for the White House. Um, so. That's an advantage because Americans don't know their geography. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to insult the entirety of the United States, but some states are larger than. um. So what are you working on now, Din?
1: Uh, Well, I'm working on a book uh, that's going to be thinking about and uh, discussing sort of the political history of um, racial friendship or racial fraternity. Uh, I've been, Uh, writing about, um, and I'm actually revising an article for a journal currently on uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's relationship with William James at Harvard. Um, And I'm interested in the dynamics of their friendship and their intellectual collaboration. But to be honest, Lily, what I'm really considering is putting forth a book proposal that covers a host of case studies that speak to racial fraternity or friendship over the years uh, in American life, going back and beginning with Thomas Jefferson and kind of the stillborn friendship, one might say, with the African American surveyor, architect, naturalist, Benjamin Banneker, and going through Lincoln and Douglas, Du Bois and James, and then also thinking about the ways in which friendship plays out politically, nationally, historically, going through uh Mary mcLeod Bethune's relationship with Eleanor Roosevelt and perhaps ending with Biden and Obama now that would be a magisterial fun book for me to write. I have no idea if anyone would be interested <laughs> in it and so it sounds I fascinating at, at some point i will uh I need to share this. Not only with your
0: listeners, but with my agent,
1: <laughs> to see <laughs> to see what she has to say about it. But that's what I'm working on right now.
0: Cool. Um, when you finish writing this magisterial work on um, r- racial friendship or across races, French, would you be willing to come back on the New Books pa- Podcast to talk about it? Absolutely.
1: I Excellent. Think, I think the working title is something like Beyond Jim and Huck. <laughs> <laughs> So it's a good title. We'll, a good see. title. We'll, we'll see uh, if it survives this interview or not. It may not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that it will. Um, so where can someone purchase American Cicero, Mario Cuomo, and the Defense of American Liberalism, which was published by Oxford University Press?
1: Yes. Uh, well, thank you for asking. You can certainly go on to the Oxford University Press Website and click on it, and they they will sell you the book right there. Uh, it is um, been um, it is sold uh, through other more popular outlets like Amazon uh, and Barnes and Noble has been um, placing the book well in its stores. From what I've gathered, and obviously you can get it online. And I would always encourage people to support your local bookstores. You know, there there are wonderful local bookstores at uh, university towns, but also in just. Um, you know your local town and and ask for the book. You know if you're in uh, Jersey, go to Labyrinth Books in Central Jersey and Princeton and ask them. Hey, wh- where's the uh, where's the American Cicero? Um, go, the Strand in New York. I'm very happy. It's a life achievement. It's one of my favorite bookstores. The Strand is selling. Congratulations! American that American is now. great. I can, I can die in peace <laughs> now. I don't have to. I like Cuomo. I can renounce any further. Uh, progress in my life because I made it to the Strand bookstore. So, um, So yeah, check out with your local bookstores and see if they're selling it.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about Mario Cuomo and American Cicero. and I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Lily. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure.